We're going to go straight uh, verse by verse through the end of chapter 4 here. Um, If you're new, that's kind of what we do. We go through books of the Bible. We usually go back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we're in 1 Corinthians right now, and this will probably take us through um, the beginning of summer. Uh, So we'll be going straight through. And then next fall, I'm not sure what we're going to do. Something crazy, maybe Ecclesiastes or something, something Old Testament. But we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and uh, we preached through chapter 7 last week, but I'm going to read beginning in verse 6, and then continue to the end. So if you follow with me, if you don't have a Bible, there's a lower shelf in the book area, and you can pretend to be going to the bathroom, and then come back with a Bible, and they're like, they're giving away Bibles in the bathroom? They are, but they're down on the bottom, you can just take whatever you'd like, and there are Bibles back there. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, says this, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, and we are poorly dressed, and buffeted, and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. And when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I don't write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of the ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And some are arrogant, as though though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is God's word. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that we come before you with absolutely nothing to offer but our sin. And you know more of our sin than we do. And that you offer freely forgiveness and mercy and grace. So we pray, Father, that this word that you have given us will change us as you say that it does. It will transform us from the inside out. That today we will not think about what other people need to hear or what other people need to know or how other people need to change. But that, Father, you will speak to our own hearts and reveal to us our own sin and our own need to change. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray and hope and breathe. Amen. Well, chapter 4 is somewhat the end of the introduction of Paul's letter. 
which is 16-ish chapters. And Paul is writing this letter in response to two things. A letter he got from the Corinthians, and then a report he got from a group of people who arrived from Corinth. And so before answering any of the practical questions, which we'll see after this as we get into the letter, before answering any of those questions that the Corinthians has, he actually is trying to address the biggest problem in the report that he got, which was the division and the conflict and the strife and the infighting in their church. And so he spends almost a third, actually, if you count the verses, but a good chunk of this letter addressing uh, unity. And he does this because disunity, disunity in relationships, disunity in marriages, disunity in families, disunity in churches are what make them become weak and contentious and eventually dead. Even if those relationships maintain relationship. They lack joy. They lack any kind of health. Division is, according to Paul, one of the first signs, maybe the telltale sign that the gospel has been lost by someone or by a couple someones. It is the sign that Something is wrong with an individual's own belief in the gospel. Of how they are viewing their identity in Christ. I firmly believe that a deep belief in the gospel will make our identity in Christ stronger. And when your identity in Christ is strong, that takes our identity with one another, the shared identity we have, deeper. Not further apart, deeper. Become more dependent more sacrificial, more servant. It just becomes our nature and our desire. What happens is that we go away from this individualized faith where Jesus is my Lord and my Savior and my King and He becomes our Lord. And it's no longer my church, it's our church and, and our family. It's no longer just my mission and my calling and my ministry. It's our mission. And our mutual calling, and our ministry that we are doing together. And so, if you find yourself, Christian, especially Christian who attends Damascus Road and is part of this church regularly, if you find yourself overly concerned with yourself, your own comfort, maybe, your own convenience, or things like your own mission, my own ministry, my own calling, those kind of things, know that you are becoming Corinthian. You're finding your identity, I believe, in the wrong place, and it's only a matter of time before you hurt yourself or you hurt someone else. You've got an identity issue. And last week I hit that really hard. What we learned is that, and we see it in verse 6 and 7 here, is that we must all find our identity in what is written in God's unchanging word and not in this ever-changing world that we live in that tells you who you are and what that is changes every day and every generation. The wisdom of the world tells us that that emptiness that we feel, that everyone experiences at some point in their life, and maybe some of you are experiencing it now, that that lack of feeling like somebody, that lack of purpose, is the result, the world would say, of just not loving yourself enough. That's the problem. 
And the solution is, you know what, you just need to boast in who you are. Or who you're not, right? Well, at least I didn't do this. But I've done this. Boast in what you know or what you've experienced. Boast in what you've done or have not done. Boast in what you have or you don't have. That's why you feel so bad. You need to boast a little bit more about yourself. And what I tried to show last week is that kind of foolishness can only lead to one of two places. Pride or despair. As you go kind of the swing between feeling superior and inferior. I feel better than this person. Oh, I didn't feel worse because that person rocks. And you go superior, inferior. Your identity is in the wrong place. The wisdom of God tells us that the cause of our emptiness is very simple. We have declared independence from God. And in doing that, we reject the idea that our relief is actually found in God. We believe it's found in ourselves. It's not. We, uh, according to God's word, are not worthless. We're not worthless because God has made us worthy. We're not special because, wait, I just found something special in me. I'm just really a unique person. No, you're special because God has said you're special. God is the one who's done something in Christ for you. You have done absolutely nothing. All is grace. All is grace. All is grace. Nothing is deserved and nothing is earned. But see, when you get to a place where you start to believe that anything you have has been earned, that you somehow are owed it, here's what happens, and I've been thinking about this lately quite a bit. When you start to adopt a sense of entitlement, which you see in our culture quite a bit, and I'm not just talking about young people, though it's pretty loud to see it there, right? When you begin to believe that you are deserved things or you can earn things, what you begin to believe is that as Christians, the life that you have in Jesus should be better than the life that Jesus had. Catch that? That's what you start to believe. Well, I deserve this, I earn this. And so you begin to believe, well, gosh, I'm a Christian. I, I have a life in Christ. And then somehow that gets to a place where you're like, well, I should... Have a life that's actually better than Jesus. You don't say that, but that's the kind of life that you would describe. So what Paul does in addressing this in this part is he starts to use his own life as an example. And specifically, he's going to teach them, let me tell you what it really looks like for one to live out their identity as a son and a servant and a steward. The kind of life that maybe we should expect. And though, as you begin to read this life, I know a lot of us read this life that Paul is living here, and he says it again in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 11 in a second letter to this church. It's a life that looks pretty foolish to the world. And let's be honest, it's a life that none of us in our flesh want. None of us in our flesh want this life. But I will say and, and argue today that God's Word says it's a life that those who follow Christ should expect. And not only expect, but expect to find joy in. Oh, no way. No way. I'm serious. Paul is speaking joyfully about this. So, in verse 8, Paul begins by describing, let me tell you, Corinthians, the kind of life you're arguing that you have. He says, 
Verse 8, already you have all you want! Exclamation point, like four sentences of exclamation points. Already you've become rich. You are kings. I wish you were, so we could reign with you. You guys are awesome! See, the Corinthians are acting like kings. They view themselves as kings. They go, well, what, what does that mean? Well, think about being a king or viewing yourself as a king and then consider how you view everyone else. Kings are only concerned with building, controlling, celebrating, and perpetuating their own Well, what's that mean? Well, at the heart of it is this. It's a lot easier to climb up on the throne of Jesus than it is to bow down before him. That's what we're talking about. And so we like to be kings because it's easy to be kings. And so kings do everything in their power. Everything, all their energy, all their time, all their money, everything in their power to ensure that they maintain a position that they get their preferences, that they have their perspective reign all things. What they believe is right. Why? Because they're the king. Kings are always looking, even in passive-aggressive ways, dare I say mainly passive-aggressive ways, to fight against those who might threaten their kingdom or challenge their throne. Kings believe that they can do whatever they want because everyone is inferior, and kings believe that no one could ever rule better than them, right? Their opinion reigns, their perspective reigns. Clearly, this is the way to do things. That's the perspective of a king. At least all earthly kings. There was one king that came who didn't have that perspective. But what we're talking about here is believers... Okay, so Paul's writing to believers who think that maturity in Christ means building more and more of your own kingdom and sacrificing less and less for Christ. That's what we're talking about. You begin to believe that God has left you here, right? Because He's left us here. He doesn't when God, when Jesus saves somebody. He doesn't take them, which I still think would be cool. Like, I believe. Whoa, gone. Doesn't happen. He leaves us here. And so, what you begin to believe, well, gosh, I must be here to um, live the American dream. To prosper. I wonder if uh, that's what many might just call Christianity getting confused with the American dream, right? Good morals, good kids, good finances, healthy home, prosperity. We begin to believe that and deceive ourselves that that's why we're here. And that's what the Corinthians are like, okay, i got to get mine. i gotta, I got to achieve and, and square away my life and make sure I can retire. i got to make sure I don't give away too much because i got to have some for me, not work too hard, but a little bit. So Paul then goes, let me tell you what my life's like, Corinthians. It's not very kingly. He says, uh, it's interesting, first thing he says in verse 9, it's like, I, 
I kind of think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Life is a spectacle. So the Corinthian experience, I'm a king, I'm going to build my kingdom and square away to the glory of God in the name of Jesus, is totally different from the apostles' experience of the Christian life. Couldn't be more different. And Paul is not, I don't think, trying to be defensive, though he does get attacked in the letter, and you can see that they kind of are um, character assassinating Paul a little bit, questioning his authority, that kind of thing. He's not being defensive, I don't think, as much as he just begins to describe the lives of the leaders, all the apostles, Paulos, Peter, himself. He describes their life and what it's like. And, in essence, contrasts it with the life that the Corinthians both want and are trying to obtain. They're completely different. The Corinthians are working hard to be first. They're working hard to be rich. They're working hard to prove they're wise. They're working hard to be strong. They're working hard to be respectable and acceptable in the world. But then he begins to detail his hardship, and you get the sense that he actually um, views it as praiseworthy, even worthy of rejoicing in. Here's what he says. We are last. The apostles, right? The, the guys that you go, well, those guys got it together. Those guys met Jesus face to face. Those guys are clearly on, you know, called by God to do something. These guys are the top echelon of spirituality if we were to measure it. And he says, well, we're last. That all others might be first for Christ. He says, we're last. He says, we're like dead men walking. We are ready to die for Christ. And if you read 2 Corinthians 11, you'd see Paul had many opportunities to die. He was beaten, stoned, whipped, almost drowned several times. He says, we're on display. And literally, it talks about like gladiators in the arena or people thrown to the beasts for Christ. He says, we're fools for Christ. We are weak for Christ. We are disrespected for Christ. We are hungry and thirsty for Christ. We are dressed in rags, beat up and homeless. We live with less for Christ. We are tired Because we are working so hard for Christ. And we are hated and persecuted and slandered like Christ for Christ. This is what our life looks like, guys. And if that's not bad enough, the last thing he says, he compares himself and the apostles to the scum that falls off ships when you clean it. Corinthians were a big ship-going community. They had a little canal. You would actually uh, carry the ships over this little isthmus of land to, uh, to the other side. So he knows, he's speaking their language like, you know that scum you guys clean off the ships? That's us. Or the dirt that you clean off your shoes? That's us. We're as good as garbage for Christ. But you guys are kings. You guys got it all together. 
You're worried about how strong and respectable you are. But we're ready to die. This isn't a, a very ideal job description for the Corinthian dream. Or the American dream. Right? That's not why people come to this country. That's not why you're working. You don't view it that way. I'm working so that I can get my retirement. So I can go live on some island and drink something with an umbrella in it. That's the goal. Right? No, I would never admit that. Of course you wouldn't. You're like me. You're dishonest about your sin. It's likely that, I think at some point, the Roman world actually saw the Corinthians become Christians, saw them gather as a church, and started going, Man, why, why are you guys loving each other so much and giving away your stuff? That's, that's really foolish. And suddenly they're being persecuted. I think that actually probably happened at some point. They saw them living differently. But instead of embracing their foolishness, that's right, we love Jesus. That's why we sacrifice for Jesus. That's why we serve you in ways that you don't, don't make sense to you. Instead of embracing their foolishness, they responded to what was the disapproval of the world by running from Christ and abandoning their identity in Christ. In stark contrast, when Paul experienced the hatred of the world, he says, or the persecution and disdain that comes with living for Christ, what did he do? He responded with blessing. He responded with enduring and sometimes being silent. And he responded by praying. That's how he responded to the disapproval of the world. But he didn't abandon Christ. So there's a strange irony in all of this. If you think about what the Corinthians in the very beginning of the letter were claiming or have been claiming this whole time, from the beginning, you have these guys claiming to follow these guys. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I follow Paul, right? And so Paul's saying, okay, you guys have said you follow the apostles. You are disciples, if you will, of the apostles. Excellent. Jesus once said, and you may have read this before, if you've been in our road groups lately, we're going through the multiply, and they bring up this point. In Luke 6.40, Peter said, I'm sorry, Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So if you say you follow somebody, you say you're a disciple of someone, the end goal or the natural result is, I'm going to end up looking like that person. So these guys have said, hey, we follow Paul, we follow Peter. He's like, really? Look how different your life looks than ours. Apparently, the Corinthians have arrived and Paul's still working on it. Not a very attractive job description. And luckily for us, we go, good thing I'm not an apostle. Because I, man, I wouldn't want to be that. What about a job description for a Christian? What if that's a job description for a Christian? What if that's where you're going? Well, I didn't know if I signed up for that. Well, maybe you didn't count the cost before you completed. Confess the name of Jesus. Did you think it was a path to prosperity and all your problems would go away and you would never have any issues again with sin and everything would just, the clouds would part and everything would prosper? See, sin doesn't go away when you become a Christian. You just become repentant about it. Suffering and chaos doesn't go away 
but you have the strength to endure it. Things change because your heart changes. But the world remains broken. Think about this. Do you expect something different from your Christian life? I think most of us do. But I think a great hard question for all of us is, what do you expect if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus from that life? What do you hope and expect that life to look like? Shouldn't, I mean, maybe I'm just being really foolish here. I think I'm being logical. If you say, and many of you would, many of us would confess, and granted, I don't remove myself from the things I'm going to say here. Okay? I've already beat myself up over all week. Well, I should say Jesus beat me up. Now I'm like, okay, here we go, guys. So I'm just sharing in this. But think about this for a second. If you confess that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, if someone asked you that question, would you say yes? And if you yeah, I would say that. Okay, then shouldn't you expect that your life will look and feel like Jesus? Well, yeah. Have you ever read what Jesus' life was like? The kingdom of God was founded on the life of, and death of Jesus Christ. A man who lived a life of suffering to the glory of God. In fact, the suffering, catch, the suffering of Jesus was the best and only way that God's mission could be accomplished. Uh-oh, where's this going? You know where it's going. And if God is still building, which we talked about, He's still building on that foundation of Jesus, right? Jesus loves, yeah, Jesus, suffering servant. If He's still building on that foundation, building us up in that foundation, then we should, we should expect our life to include suffering and hardship for Christ. In fact, this is not a building like hindrance, right? We don't go, oh, I'm so, I'd be building if, if I wasn't suffering so bad, if I didn't experience these hardship and things. Really, no. Those are actually one of the primary ways God builds. Oh, I don't like that. I know, but it's in the Bible. That's what the life of Jesus was. And it's a different kind of suffering. It's a different kind of hardship. It's not hardship. I think in Christ, it's not hardship that devastates. It's hardship that's difficult and it purifies. It's hardship that causes you to endure. It's hardship that builds you up so that you are stronger. And dare I say, hardship in which, because you know what it's doing to you, you can rejoice. One commentator said it this way, the Christian life is not the fast track to glory but a slow, arduous path that takes one through suffering. The suffering so visible in the life of the apostles is not some tedious detour for elite volunteer corps, but the main highway for all Christians. I don't think we need to go looking for suffering. Right? I don't think we need to make monastic oaths of poverty and those types of things. And like, I just need to suffer more. I'm going to find ways to make myself suffer and start whipping yourself. 
That's not the point. Trust me, suffering will find you, right? But I do say that as Christians, as Christians, I want you to understand, the Corinthians, right, are, really believe that they are to avoid as much suffering and find as much comfort as they can. Yes, I'm trying to challenge your comfort as a Christian. What's his agenda? That's it! Right there, I just told you. Cat's out of the bag. We are called, and I'm going to read some verses you're not going to like, we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ. And some of us are doing our darndest to avoid that. In his second letter, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, a verse you've probably heard before. 2 Corinthians 1, chapter 3 says, Blessed, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5, for as we share abundantly, it's not just share, abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. We're sharing in the sufferings of Christ and designed to. 1 Peter 4, 12, a verse that we should read over and over again. It says, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, but anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Disciples of Jesus are going to have lives that look and feel like Jesus, and it's going to be uncomfortably glorious. That is our call. That is not our option. That's not a choice we have. If you are going to follow Christ, That is going to be what you should expect. And that is why most Christians don't follow Christ, though they claim to be a Christian. I don't want us ever to be comfortable in our Christianity. It's a dangerous place to be. Corinthians are boasting in their own awesomeness. And in doing that, they're trying to avoid any discomfort or any dishonor or any disruption to their lifestyle. And the more comfortable people get sitting on the throne of Jesus, the less easy it's going to be to bow before him. And there is nothing more repulsive, and I say this about even myself, because I've certainly exhibited this. So I am repulsed at myself whenever I see Christian pride. But there's nothing more attractive and more powerful than Christian humility. So what's that? It's when... I believe true disciples in response, not for, but in response to the great love of Jesus, where they truly see all that Jesus has done for them. They trust Him enough to relinquish position, to 
who relinquish the need to hold on to power, who relinquish the need to have their preferences and their ways in order to suffer for, with, and like Jesus. That's beautiful. And rare. And I think most of us, as we read, we will try, our flesh will try to have us identify with Paul. And we'll try to list out all the ways that we're suffering or have suffered. Make our little lists. Well, I lost a friend once, right? We got to talk about, like, I gave to the church this year. Those kind of things. We start making our lists. When the truth is, we probably should be honest about most of us are more Corinthian than we really want to admit. And when we read and read stories of what I'll just call super Christians, right? The old biographies of people, read people like Paul in here and the stuff they're doing, and you hear sermons about it, and you're like, it's so horrible, right? You can't help but start to feel like a sense of shame. I understand that. But that's not Paul's intention, and he knows that's what the Corinthians are going to start to feel. Like, we don't measure up. We don't suffer enough. Now I feel embarrassed. I haven't done enough. He's like, that's not my intent. And I'll just be, be really honest with you, okay? Because we're supposed to be family, right? My, my goal is to, uh, for you to know me, for me to know you. And I typically know everyone uh, who is here on a Sunday morning who's not. Did you know that? I know that Sid is sitting over here and he normally sits over there. It's kind of screwing me up right now, okay? But I know, you all kind of sit in the same spots, you know, just so you know. I can't always tell all your names, but I try. I don't fake it anymore. You're like, I don't know your name. Right? I don't pretend. But I know. I remember. Kaylin, can, she has been going to Snohomish sometimes because of her foot and stuff. And so she was like, well, who was there? I can go, well, I tell you who's not and who was. I can. It's weird. So I, I speak to you as, as your pastor, one of your pastors. And I'll tell you that it is not easy. It's difficult to tell people, follow Christ. And that's my job. That's really my job is to tell people to follow Christ, to stop being comfortable in your Christianity. And it's difficult to that because people receive it really poorly. Most people don't like to hear that. And I could go, well, it's because they're convicted. Yeah, sometimes it's because I say it poorly. But my heart is that I don't want, I don't want and I don't want you to be comfortable in being a Christian. But it is not my intent and it is not my goal ever to be causing shame because guess what? Sin is what causes shame. Not God. And so Paul ends his introduction here basically revealing his heart and my hope is that you hear my heart and how he speaks about this letter and how I speak even about this sermon. Because it's clear that he knows his letter, i.e. sermon, it's not going to be well received. It's going to make people cry. And guess what? We know that it did in 2 Corinthians. They heard this, and he's like, yeah, you guys are so comfortable and so kingly. And you guys think you're rocking it. I can barely eat and clothe myself. I'm about to die. And they're like, we're sorry. We're so bad. Right? He knows they cried. They did. They grieved. He's like, it wasn't my intent to grieve. But it was my intent to grieve you into repenting. So he addresses them and he says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. Right? He's writing to them as a father. But to admonish you as my beloved children, for you have countless guides in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel, and I urge you then be imitators of me. 
That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of the ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. So we learn a lot about the relationship between a pastor and a flock, and so I just want to talk about that briefly. Because Paul is talking about his relationship with this church. God has given him, Paul that is, the responsibility to shepherd this church and to bring this particular church to a place where they basically love their sin less and love Jesus more. And so the first thing that a pastor has to do, and I think the first thing he does, is to love like Christ. And what's that mean? Well, Paul planted this church. Um, He watched as God took them from death to life. And I've seen that many times in our own church. Our church started off with 13 people in my house. It's grown a lot since then. And I've seen people come and go. And the Corinthians, in terms of their relationship with Paul, they know his voice like a sheep know the voice of their shepherd. Why? Because he knows them. He has spent years with them. Many of you were here uh, when we were in the school putting black plastic on cafeteria tables. Uh, Many have seen me do um, incredibly immature and stupid things uh, over the years, and you've been very forgiving about that, as hopefully I've been repentant in doing that. You've seen, we've been through a lot together. And some of you are new, and you haven't, and my prayer is that you do go through a lot, but we have a relationship. And when there is no relationship, which it gets difficult as you grow, there is no trust. And letters like this or sermons like this, you begin to question because you don't trust the pastor. And you begin to infer wrong things. You begin like, are they talking about me? Are they talking about me? I've had that. As I've preached a sermon, I haven't thought about a particular person. And someone will come up, you were talking about me, weren't you? No, but I guess I am now. Right? But you begin because there's no relationship, no trust. You know nothing about me. You haven't seen me. You haven't seen your other pastors in work. You haven't heard them confess when they make mistakes during announcements. You begin to assume things, infer the wrong things, and believe the wrong things. And that's just a path to disunity. The truth is, I cannot be everyone's best friend, neither can any of the pastors. Um, I can't be the father figure you didn't have. I can't be the counselor that fixed every single one of your problems but I can get close enough to you and you can choose to get close enough to me to know me and for me to know you. There's a love that the pastor and and the sheep and the shepherd, if you will, have to have for one another because that closeness develops a loving relationship that over time, 1 Peter 4, 8, covers a multitude of sins. That's huge. So Paul is banking on that. He's like, you guys know me. I love you guys. I'm not trying to hurt you. What that does is help us hopefully hear each other's hearts and not just words. And that's what Paul wants them to know. But a pastor also has to say hard words. He has to love like Christ, but he has to admonish in Christ. And there is a huge difference between shame and admonishment. Shame is just trying to hurt somebody. I'm going to tell you why you're so jacked up so that you feel bad and cry, and then I feel good about myself. As opposed to admonishment, which means... Hard words that hope for change. 
hope for change. Men and women, I believe, must be called to repent. They must be called to turn from loving their sin to being loved by Jesus. And a good pastor may occasionally make people cry. But that's not his goal. But like Paul, we have to speak words that grieve us, hopefully, into repenting. Like, stop following the world. Stop being comfortable. Stop finding your identity in something other than Jesus. Start acting like the son that you are, the daughter that you are. Start serving somebody except yourself for once. Start stewarding the gifts that God has given you, starting with that wife that He's given you, or that husband, or those children, or that money. Start. Quit making excuses. Pastor's got to speak hard words. And when pastors speak hard words, guess what? There is a difference between admiration for those words and submission to them. See, Paul doesn't like write his letter, and this is going to be a difficult one. Um, He doesn't write this letter to uh, just give them advice. He's actually trying to reestablish authority over them because there's a lot of people competing for their allegiance. And so Paul reminds them, he's like, as a father... My commands and directions are not optional. Right? As a father to your children, if you are a dad, it's not like you go, all right, kids, I'm going to give you five instructions. You can choose to obey three of them. Right? It's not how it works. Commands are given. They're expected to be followed. Now, Hebrews 13, 17 says a verse that no one who is not a pastor doesn't like. But I'll tell you right now, I don't like it either. But the Bible says it. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Oh. Are you serious? Obey your leaders and submit to them? You're going to drop the word submission? You're going to drop the word obedience? You just said, obey Sam and submit to him? The Bible says. You know what else it says in that verse? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give or have to give an account. I have to give an accounting to the Lord for how I shepherd and what I say, even right now. And how I shepherd, and how I love, and how I admonish or not. You don't. That's a pretty huge weight. And so there are, at times, that as your pastor, I'm not asking. I've sat down with people and counseled them who are my good friends. And I've said, all right, friend hat is off, and this is now pastor hat. That is not easy. Because many of these friends I had well before I was pastor. But that has to happen for unity in the body, for growth as Christians, and for my accountability before the Lord. This is not obey me in anything, Paul's not obey me in anything I say, no matter what. It is instruction that is rooted in Christ. In other words, I am calling you to obey what Christ has called you to do, not what Sam has called you to do. Test what I say. Test what all your pastors say. You guys should have your Bibles open. I don't know if I test it and reject anything that is not biblical. Paul says he is sending Timothy with one job. 
not remind them what my opinions are. To remind them of the ways of Christ. Teach them what I've taught in terms of the ways of Christ in all the churches. And lastly, and probably most importantly, a pastor, Paul, and myself, and Chris, and Randy, and Mark, and Nate, have to live for Christ. Yeah, they got to love and admonish and instruct, but they got to live. There is a huge difference between do as I say and do as I do. Paul tells the Corinthians something pretty bold. It's like, imitate me. Wow. That's, that's pretty bold. But I will say, um, quite simply, that we will fail, meaning us pastors, if we ask you to repent and we don't. If we ask you to give and we don't. If we ask you to be transparent about your sin and confess it and we're not. If we ask you to forgive and we haven't. If we ask you to, you know what? I'll be last for Christ. And you're like, but Pastor, you're always like first. You got like the driving parking spot like right up front. How's that work? If I am going to be asking you to be a fool for Christ, I better be pretty foolish. If I'm going to ask you to be weak, I better be willing to be weak. If I'm going to ask you to sacrifice, I should be sacrificing. I should be working hard. I should be hated all for Christ. And then I'll have the authority, if you will, to say, follow me. Hebrews 13.7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke for you, spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of the way of life and imitate their faith. I don't suggest for a second I have a perfect life, but I, by God's grace, better be able to stand before you and say, imitate me. Even if that imitation is, let me show you where I screwed up. Let me show you where I fell short. It's not imitating perfection. It's imitating a Christ-centeredness where I'm honest about my sin and not overwhelmed about it. Paul says, follow me in the way of Christ. And if Chris or Nate or Randy or Mark or myself cannot stand before you and say, imitate me, then we should never be standing before you. Period. The aim of everything, though, is not for the Corinthians to be Paul-like. And the aim of Damascus Road Church is definitely not for you guys to be Sam-like. We're different. The goal is to be Christ-like. My goal is to be Christ-like. Your goal is to be Christ-like. So Paul ends, and I'll end with the section of warning those who are going to reject his word he just said. And he basically says, do you want me to come with a rod or a hug? Which one? He says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I'll come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I'll find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God isn't kissist and talk, but in power. Paul uh, could easily be misconstrued as a a pastor bully here, right? Do what I say or I'm going to beat you up. Um, He's likely responding to what the predictable Corinthian response is going to be like, oh, send Timothy, you didn't want to come yourself, huh? And the truth is, a good pastor, a true pastor, a strong pastor is not afraid to address conflict head on. And Paul's not afraid. The real bullies, if you want to talk about bullies, are the talkers. Most bullies are pansies, if you didn't know that. 
Most bullies don't actually get to the point of fight. They just talk a lot. And they scare you with their words. So Paul talks about the talkers. And specifically the guys who were the words of the pastor. Don't apply to them. And there are some here who feel the same way. When confronted with the fact about the reality of your life, that you are comfortable in your Christianity, that you confess to love Jesus all you want, but your life looks like you love yourself and everything else but Jesus. You dismiss what the pastor preaches as his opinion, or you think about, well, I know where you screwed up. I know the skeletons in your closet. I don't have to listen to you. I'm not going to listen to you. Arrogant people are above being corrected. You want to know how I know that so well? I used to be incredibly arrogant. Occasionally I fall into that still. Guess what? Arrogant people are always right. Arrogant people are kings. You can't tell me I'm wrong. You tell me I'm wrong, I'm going to tell you five reasons why what you think is wrong is actually right. And how wrong you are. That's what arrogant people do. They are above being wrong. They are above being repentant. That's their problem. They've placed themselves above Jesus and not at his feet. So the kingdom of God consists of more than just talk, especially about how much you say you love Jesus, how much you think you serve Jesus, and how much you think you're stewarding all you have for Jesus, and how much you're suffering for Jesus. A lot of people talk about that, but the truth is the kingdom of God is built on the power of the Spirit to actually make you do it. And I'll close with a, strangely, a Piper quote that I happened upon a couple days ago, reminding us that grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power and not just pardon. Grace actually enables you to do more than talk. And so as we come forward to the table, what you're reminding yourself is not simply, I am confessing that I am forgiven in Christ, that I come to the altar with absolutely nothing to offer but my sin. Jesus knows more sin than I ever admit, but He loves me more than I could ever imagine. That is true. But as you take the cup and you remember that your old self is buried with Him, that His body was broken for you, that your old life is gone and dead, you also remind yourself of the resurrection. That that same grace gave you the power to live differently. That same grace gave you the strength to suffer like Christ, to serve Christ. So you don't just confess one thing, you confess them both. And so my prayer is as you come forward today, God will show you where in your life you become comfortable in your Christianity, whether you've been a Christian for a year or 40 years. And for one time, maybe in a long time, you'll begin to be a little uncomfortable as you imagine what God's going to have you do tomorrow or the next day or the next day for Him. Ask Him. He'll show you where you need to be a little more uncomfortable.